Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. God, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to learn this third lesson about the new creation and what, what it means to be new, what it means to be new in you. And we just thank you for these men and women journeying tonight who are brave the cold and who are here with us. We thank you for those on Zoom, those on the pod, listening on the podcast, and those here in person. We just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So two weeks ago, we started this series. We kind of used a baseball analogy, left field, center field, and tonight's right field. And the left field, uh, we looked at like Zacchaeus and these the Syrian general Naaman from the Old Testament. People who really weren't part of God's team. They were just kind of out in left field. And they really weren't part of, the, of God's family. They weren't part of God's people. They were just out there. You might say someone like, the, like Ruth in the book of Ruth would also qualify in that territory. And yet they had this encounter with God in some way via a prophet. And they responded to God. They responded to instruction and they were brought in. Center field, we, we, we kind of looked at a couple people uh, last week. We had uh, Lydia and we had the woman at the well in John 4. Two people who aren't exactly left field people, but they are in the conversation. And so they encountered God. In fact, in Lydia's case, God opened up her heart. And in the woman's case at the well, Jesus gave her that living water. And so tonight we come to the right field. And in this case, we've got people who are part of the family. They're part of this group that you would consider them to be insiders. Just by who they were, you would consider them to be already part of all this. And we have Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, and we actually have another Pharisee by the name of, of Paul. He used to go by Saul. And so in John chapter 3, it starts, we have the story of Nicodemus in John 3. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, so he's coming at night, so we don't know exactly why. He's probably a little embarrassed to meet with Jesus he doesn't want everyone else to know he's going to meet with you. I don't know. The text doesn't exactly tell us, but it's happening at night. He shows up at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So we have, for starters here, Nicodemus's logic. And his logic is this. You must be one of God's guys because you're doing God's things. But most importantly, God seems to be with you. So you wouldn't be able to do the signs you were doing if God were not with him. So it's an interesting way to look at it in terms of what Jesus is going to say next. His basic logic is God is with you. And I've encountered this as a pastor before, especially with people who are not part of the church, or maybe they grew up Catholic and they kind of loosely were part of the church. They'll come to me and they'll say, you're a pastor. You're one of God's guys. And that means God's probably with you in some way. 
or you're with. So they kind of look at somebody in the church and they say, yeah, you're one of God. You've got access to the big guy upstairs, something like that. They'll look at you. They looked at me and they're like, okay, you're a pastor. So you must be on the inside track. So they will sometimes want to do me favors. You know, they'll give me a discount on a home repair or, you know, whatnot. I don't ask for these things, but okay, well, you're, you're somebody in the church. So maybe you'll give me a blessing. Maybe you'll say a prayer for me. I'm like, guys, really? I've even had at one time a, a, a guy wouldn't give me a bill. He said, well, you're a pastor. So maybe you'll just you know, pray for my business. Okay. I'd like to pay you, but uh, if you insist, I, I, I can't make you charge me, but, but yeah, so like this idea that you're a pastor, you are somebody in the faith, God must be with you. So Nicodemus is right there. He's looking at Jesus and saying, okay, you're something different. God must be with you because you're doing all these things, so God must be with you. Now, why do I bring all this up? Because Jesus then shifts the table. Nicodemus' logic is, You can be a certain way. You can have a certain thing about you and God is obviously with you. That seems to be very important to Nicodemus. It was important for those people who are are talking with me as as meeting a pastor. Like, oh, God's with you. You, you, You've got access. I I want you to, to pray for me. And that's not the point. The point is not that God's with me. That doesn't make me special. That doesn't set me apart that God is with me as if I'm somebody special, as if I'm somebody unique. That's not the point. It never should be the point. For no Christian, that should be the point. How do I know that? Because Jesus replied, verse 3, very truly I tell you, or in the Greek, amen, amen, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God. See, Nicodemus is basically saying, you're like the kingdom of God. God seems to be with you. You are the God thing going on here. You must be from God. God must be with you because you're doing these awesome things. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Oh, my goodness. So Jesus has an expectation here. Nicodemus has a logic. It's like, okay, somebody can be close to God and God can be close to them. Obviously, is a famous rabbi who's doing amazing things. Jesus is saying, no. The expectation is you must be born again. No, Nicodemus doesn't get it. How can someone be born again when they're old? Surely they, can, they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. I mean, that's obviously inappropriate and even to think about it. But he's, I guess Nicodemus is making a point here. Like he's trying to take Jesus at his word and born again. Are you serious? Is this like the, um, the obstetrician wing of a hospital? I mean, is this what we're talking about here? Nicodemus is an old man and his mother's probably long dead. How can Nicodemus possibly be born again? So Jesus has to explain it to him. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh and then he defines it. He links his fleshly birth with the water birth. You know, it's even in the ancient world, everyone understood that when it was time for, for mom to give birth, her water breaks. There was something about that. Water comes out and then the baby comes out. There it is. Easy way to say born of water. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound but cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born in the spirit. 
So Jesus right away takes a shot at Nicodemus as God is with him thing. Ah, I can tell you must be somebody, Jesus, but the Lord, God seems to be with you. You really can't tell that about somebody born of the Spirit. That, that's not really the currency anymore. It's about you being born again, not about is God on your team. I don't want God on my team. That's missing the point. I don't want God, you know, to have my back as in, okay, God, we're good. And so you're going to make things happen. No, that, that, that's missing the point. Nicodemus's logic is that God was with Jesus and Jesus' expectation is like, no, this whole kingdom of God is about you being born again. There's something categor- categorically different about what it means to see the kingdom of God. So how can this be, verse 9, Nicodemus asks. And Jesus, you know, I wonder if he's laughing here. I wonder if he's scolding. We're not exactly tr- We don't exactly know. You're Israel's teacher, Jesus asked. And, you, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know. Now, Jesus this is either kind of like a royal we, kind of like a we of importance, or maybe Jesus is going Trinity here. Maybe he's talking about him and his disciples and the preaching they've been doing. I don't know. But he says, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. Okay, so maybe not the disciples so much, maybe Jesus. And I don't know, this is something big here. We testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Now he's talking about himself. He's like, I've come from heaven. I have seen these things. I'm the one who can uniquely tell you that you need to be born, not just of the flesh, but born again of the spirit. And then he defines it. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. And, and at this point, a Pharisee is going to go, oh, yeah, that's the book of Numbers. That's that time where they were traveling in the wilderness and, and, and the snakes came and bit and God sent snakes to bite and he bit the, they bit the people and the people cried out and God said, God came up with some really weird solution. Make this bronze snake and, and, and stick it on a pole and stick it high up in the air and lift it up. And if you go and kneel down before that snake and you'll get healed, it was just this obscure, odd method of salvation that didn't make sense at all. But just, because, just as that, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So Jesus took that lifted up serpent as a metaphor for him being lifted up. And for, from what we know, as we knew a little bit more than Nicodemus did, because it hasn't happened yet for him. Jesus is going to be lifted up on a cross. But that cross would be foolishness for some, just like the lifted up serpent in the wilderness was foolishness for some. But if only, the only way you were saved is to take God at his word and accept his salvation and to trust his salvation, no matter how foolish this sounded. And our salvation does sound foolish. God, through Jesus, won the victory through death. Not through conquering in armies, but through his own sacrifice. So we have this tension. The tension between Nicodemus and Jesus. Nicodemus' tension is, is God is close to you because of your heritage. You were born in a certain position. 
your father might have been a rabbi. So you would grow up in a rabbi's home. You would most likely be a rabbi. You take it upon your father's mantle. You have this heritage and God is close to you. Certainly, as Israelites, we have this heritage, Nicodemus' people would look at. We have this heritage. We have these accomplishments. God is close to you because you've done something or accomplished something. There's something about you that God is now close to you because you have now achieved something. That's the tension. That's the tension coming from first century Judaism. That you, you have to have either been born into this closeness with God or you have to have achieved some kind of closeness with God. Or maybe there's some kind of manipulation. You're now some great and powerful rabbi. So now you seem to, you know, God's going to listen to you. I know that's how people kind of viewed me a bit. Like I had some inside track to God because I happened to be a pastor. That certainly wasn't the case. But maybe there's some kind of manipulation that can go on there between a person and God because of this tension. And that's why he didn't get it when Jesus brought up the, the other idea that there's a new birth. It's not your heritage that matters. It's this new birth. It's this new work of God in you. It's not so much that God is close to you. It's the fact that God has taken your lifeless corpse and breathed life into you, a new life. That God has regenerated you. That God has caused a new birth to be, in, to be you, to be born again. God has given you something that is different than just the flesh. And then there's a new perspective. That life isn't all about these fleshly pursuits and positions and honors and all these things and accomplishments and resumes. And you're doing these wonderful things. So that means God's with you. That's not the way the Christian life works. God is only with us because he's done a work in us, not because we're doing these amazing works in his name. It's the God, the one doing the work. And it starts as he regenerates you and me. And then, then he uses us. But he first works in us as he draws us to him. As he leads us along that path to admit that we are sinners, that we can't trust anything but Jesus for our salvation. And that we place our trust in him to commit our way to him as disciples. That's the story of Nicodemus. There's that tension there. That tension follows us because if life is all about the fleshly pursuits, then we're missing the point. We aren't living as new creations if we live for the outside, if we live for the pursuits of this world. I like how, how, how Peter talks about it. We, we need to live as aliens and strangers in, re, in reverent fear. There's something about us that needs to be, I believe that's 1 Peter 1, like 17 or 18, one of those verses. It's like there's something about us that needs to be strange, that needs to be peculiar, that needs to be a stranger according to the world. If the world looks at you and me and says, yeah, that makes sense, you're one of us. That is completely missing the point. How are we born again if we're just living by that first way? If we're living to please other people, if we're living to 
get the attaboy or atta girl from other people of this earth by the world's standards. We're missing the point. That tension needs to be in our hearts. The tension that looks at what Nicodemus was looking for and saying, no, that's not my life. My life is not about my heritage, my accomplishments, or how I can manipulate God into doing what I want him to do. It is about the new birth. It is about what God is doing in me and through me. His work. And that's my perspective. So we move on to Paul. And Paul is going to wrestle with this too. And and, and this is in Philippians chapter 3. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write these same things to you again. It is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. And in this context, he's going to be talking about circumcision, which no man really wants to hear that word. That's not most adult. We don't want to hear that word. But these people were saying you had to be circumcised even as an adult, to come close to God. Like these, these Judaizers that said, you've got to first come to Moses before you can come to Jesus. You first have to understand what it means to be a Jew before you can truly understand Jewish Jesus. So they cut the flesh, and they cut the flesh, and they cut the flesh. This is Nicodemus' logic all over again. Everything is about the outside in some way. That's why Jesus had to tell Nicodemus, no, 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 there's something new. But it's in the spirit. Being born again is a spiritual thing, not a physical thing. So in Paul's day, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision. See, in Paul's day, circumcision was something that was done. Paul makes it, he gets philosophical. He changes the verb from an action verb to a linking verb. We are the circumcision. It's just kind of like in Acts chapter 1. Jesus does not say, you will do my witnessing. He says to his disciples right before he leaves them, you will be my witnesses. There's something deeper about that. There's something more inherent, more identity based about that. We are the circumcision. What is circumcision? It is a cutting away. It is a sacrifice, as it were. We are that circumcision. We are the ones who deny ourselves, who pick up that cross and follow Jesus. We are that living sacrifice that he would talk about in Romans chapter 12. That's who we are. The very thing they're trying to communicate with circumcision, this ritualistic holiness being set apart, we are that walking circumcision. We are that being set apart, holy as he is holy. It is we who are the circumcision who serve God by his spirit. Interesting. Not by the flesh. We serve God by his spirit who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So fleshly confidence is what Nicodemus had. Jesus, you're somebody. Things are happening all around you. God must be with you. You're doing these signs. You're doing these fleshly works. An idea of a fleshly work. There were hungry people and Jesus took a Lunchable and fed 5,000 plus. That was a very physical fleshly miracle. Okay, it was a physical, tangible thing that everybody saw and they ate it. Or, you know, they heard the story of the the wind and the waves were swarming the boat and Jesus said, peace be still. That was a tangible, physical thing. Physical waves and physical wind knocked it off and shut up and stopped. That wasn't exactly flesh, but it's a tangible thing. Versus something that is spirit. Well, the fleshly confidence is real. It's a very real thing that people really feel. 
They felt it in Nicodemus's day. They felt it in Paul's day. They saw somebody and they said, you know what? You're, you're actually, you're doing fine. Look at you. Life is working out for you. You've got a good job. You've got money. You've got security. You've got, you know, a wife and kids or grandkids or whatever it is. You've got a nest egg. You've got these things. God must really have blessed you because you have these things. Or they go on the other side and say, you know what? What's wrong with you? You don't have these things. Did you sin or did your parents sin? Why is this happening to you? Job's friends felt this tension. The Pharisees, when they saw the man born blind, felt this tension. The physical, the fleshly confidence is the very real thing. A lot of people place confidence in what they can see and what they can measure. In philosophy, you call it empiricism. What's true is what I can, I can, I can measure, what I can see, what I can process. Science is essentially based upon that, observable data. Confidence is based upon what can be measured. Can you measure the spirit? Can you measure the heart? Not this way. So the fleshly confidence is a very real thing, and we have to fight that. We have to fight that, that very confidence in the flesh, because Paul is saying, no, 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 you, you are not doing the circumcision, you're being the circumcision. So there's something about you that needs to knock that off. And then to forestall anybody saying, well, of course you're going to say that because you're now a rabbi yourself and you're going to try to get him. Maybe you weren't much to write home about. And so now here you are, this Jesus guy. So maybe you have nothing to say. So Paul says, well, hold on. Verse four, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. You all can't put confidence in your flesh, but maybe Paul could. Paul's resume here. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In fact, you could argue that Paul is the most famous member of the tribe of Benjamin. And like he is it, the guy. And maybe it wasn't also Saul, the other Saul in the Bible. He was also a Benjamite. But um, I'm just going to say it. King Saul, um, the, as great as he was, he didn't write half the New Testament. I mean, Paul has some... Uh, Rabbi Shaul of the New Testament has something on King Shaul of the Old Testament. Just saying, this is maybe the Benjamite of Benjamites. This guy, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, he's a Pharisee. So all of his peeps are going, oh yeah, yeah, we're not touching you. As for zeal... I was literally persecuting the church. As for righteousness, righteousness based on the law, you're not touching me. I was faultless. He continues. So his resume is spotless. Paul was, he probably spoke three languages. He probably could write in at least three languages. Paul was a Roman citizen. Paul, he, he had everything. Paul was masterful teacher, speaker. He was it. There was nobody that was touching Paul in terms of what Paul could do and what Paul could accomplish. He could walk in any crowd. He could accomplish almost everything. He could speak to Romans. He could speak to Jews, Gentiles. Yeah, you, you got it. He was the guy. But whatever were gains to me, and he had plenty of physical gains, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more... I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And then he uses a cuss word. 
in the Greek. I consider them, now the NIV cleans it up as garbage. I've heard it said, this is like, um, if you want to think about medieval times when people used to uh, empty their, 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 uh, their waste, their, their, their overnight waste, and they toss it out the second floor window and it goes into the streets and it runs into the curbs, their bedpans, and it would collect and it would fester and it would collect flies and it would be along the street. You, you didn't walk underneath second floor windows in medieval times. That's that word, scubla. That idea of, well, I'll, I'll say a cleaner word, crap. A much cleaner word. Paul uses a word, like the worst of gross words that Paul could use. I consider all that greatness that I had, all that physical fleshly confidence I had, like the contents of a bedpan tossed from a second story window and hit in the street. Rubbish, garbage, poop. I consider them garbage. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not having this fleshly based confidence kind of righteousness, but that which is through faith in Christ. You know what Jesus talks about? The one that you, you could only get. You want to see the kingdom of God? You've got to be born of the Spirit. The Spirit has to be doing something inside of you, regenerating you inside of you. That's the only way you can have any confidence is if God has done work in you. There it is. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. It's almost like he can't even believe it. He knows it's possible. He's already written about it as, as Christ was rose as the first fruits of that great promise. He knows that Jesus rose again from the dead because he met him. He met him on the road to Damascus. He didn't know who he was until Jesus introduced himself and it shut Paul up. He wasn't going to persecute the church anymore because Jesus said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me, not my church, me. Okay. So we have Paul's resume, Paul's profit and loss here. He's looking at his life and saying, you know what? I've, I, I, I'm, I'm considering all the things I used to be confident about as a loss. That's a loss. But what am I seeking to gain? I want to know Jesus. I want to be found in him. I want to forget what is behind and strain towards what is ahead. You see, there, there, there's, there, there, there's a perspective there. That new perspective that Nicodemus had to learn, that you, don't, you no longer live for the flesh, you live according to the Spirit. That's why in, in Galatians 5, we have the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And if the fruit of the flesh is what's on your tree, you're messed up. You need to repent. But it's the fruit of the Spirit. That's how we are to live. There's something different about us as new creations. We're now not flesh-driven. We're spirit-driven. We're keeping in step with the Spirit. We're, we're following where the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John chapter 14 and chapter 16 that the Holy Spirit will lead us and guide us into all truth. We are following Him as He leads us. So there's something about Paul that he's no longer pursuing anymore. And there's something about Paul that he's giving up everything just to pursue. Think about your life. What do you strain to achieve? Is it about your heritage? Is it about your accomplishments? Is it about what you can get, what you can have, what you can manipulate, what you can, ha 
All these things. What is it? What is it about your life that motivates you? The old counseling line, I do what I do because I want what I want. What is it you want most? What is it you really, 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 really want? Is it something fleshly or not? What is it? Where is your pursuit? So Paul then continues, why does it matter? All of us then who are mature should take a view of of such things, such a view of things. This is verse 15, Philippians 3. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. It's like Paul is saying here, yeah, you may not believe me, but you know what? Too bad. If you don't believe what I'm saying, well, God's going to take care of that. Well, for as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. That's terrifying. Imagine if you are somebody like Nicodemus. You think you're on God's team, but you're still living as an enemy because you're living for the flesh. Who's in charge of the fleshly world? The prince of the kingdom of the air. Are we living as an enemy of God because we're pursuing the flesh? Or are we considering the flesh like that refuse in the bedpan? I mean, at some point, I know, yuck, 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 that's a fun joke, but at some point, why are you living? Why does all this matter? Because if you're living to please the flesh in some way, in some means, by some direction, you're living against God. How could you be living according to the flesh and honoring God, the Holy Spirit? It's not possible. Now, he expects you to be obedient to matters of your flesh, but to living, living for your flesh, those pursuits... That was Nicodemus's flaw in his logic. He further describes these enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Ouch. Their God is their stomach. Ooh. What does that mean? Well, he called them dogs earlier. Have you ever known a dog to be done eating? Well, it could happen. Eventually a dog doesn't take any more treats or the dog's done. Okay, I've, I've eaten them. We had a dog for 16 years. Bless her heart. She's... She's already crossed the Rainbow Bridge, but she was the worst eater of all time. She would leave messes everywhere. She would just, you know, just, just had all of her food spread everywhere. Every time we had another dog that would come visit, the, the next dog would have a field day cleaning up all the mess left behind. You know, Lucky would eat her meal and just have it everywhere. And I was constantly getting a broom and sweeping up little kibbles. And we'd have other dogs come visit. And the other dogs were just working around the floor and just eating this, eating that, eating this. Like, well, there's your meal, guy. I mean, we just eat up after Lucky there. But those other dogs would never be full. They just kept eating and kept eating. I've known some dogs. They would just constantly beg for whatever I had. And I wanted to do one time a science experiment. Never did do it. Where I would trade my food for the dog's food. And I would take the dog's dish and put it on my lap and, you know, make a big, make a big, you know, show of, mm, oh boy, this is the, oh wow. And to see if the dog, and put my plate of food in the dog's spot and see if I could convince the dog to still beg for his own food or her own food instead of eating, you know, the, the nice, you know, hamburger or the steak or whatever it was I put on the floor. I never did try it because I never was brave enough because I think the dog would figure it out. Oh, half my kibbles, master. I'm a, I want that steak. I want that casserole or whatever it was. I never did try. I always wanted to, but I never did. You see, their God is their stomach. If you live for your desires, if you live to please you, 
The lust of the flesh is never satisfied. You think you're satisfying it, but you're fooling yourself because you're never satisfied. Even when you get momentary satisfaction, it's just like that old song, I can't get, no, you never can get that satisfaction. No, no, no. You think you've got it, but you don't have it. It's like trying to grab water with your bare hands. Yeah, your, your hands are wet, but you haven't gotten anything. It just kind of, you know, flips about. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Ouch, ouch, ouch. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. Why does this matter? Our citizenship is not of this earth. We are not living to be earthly kings. We're not living for earthly pleasure, earthly glory. We're not living for that. And if you are, you're not following Jesus. Because Jesus tells us to deny ourselves. We're not living for fleshly confidence. We're not living for fleshly pursuits. We're living for the Spirit. We're marching and keeping step with the Spirit, we're told. Our citizenship is in heaven. So we're just strangers here on earth. We're just like aliens and strangers. We're just passing through. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. That's why it matters. This fleshly confidence, if your confidence is in your flesh, if you answer my question, I do what I do because I want what I want, what do I want most? If that answer is fleshly, you need to hit pause. You need to consider Paul's usage of the word refuse or garbage or, or bedpan content, whatever, however you want to define that Greek word. Excuse me. It's like if that is you, you're living for that. You're living for the contents of a toilet in contrast to eternal matters. Where is your mind set? Is it on earthly things? Or is it on the fact that our citizenship is in heaven awaiting our Savior from there when he comes again? Who's going to bring everything under his control? I know life doesn't seem like it's under his control right now. I know life seems really snarky and sticky and things are hard and people are in control right now. At least they think they're in control, but for our standpoint, they are. And it stinks and we're tired of it. We're tired of the persecution. We're tired of what we have to go through as Christians those who follow Jesus. But we aren't eagerly awaiting flesh. Our confidence is not in something we're going to get or something. We're not eagerly waiting the opportunity that Nicodemus might have longed for that says one day God's going to be with me and that one day God's going to be close to me and that one day I'm going to be with God. One day God's going to take and make things new, but it's going to make everything fleshly new. And everything is just going to be the way it should be. And the enemies will be defeated. And the ones who have been smacked down will be risen up. And yet God's going to do those things as he one day makes all things new. But he first works in the fleshly realm. The spiritual realm, excuse me. Before he goes to the flesh. God makes all things new in the new creation on the inside. According to the spirit. That's why Jesus says the flesh gives birth to flesh, the spirit gives birth to spirit. If you want to see the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again. There's something that must be new about you. 
That's why it matters. 2 Corinthians 5.17, our theme verse, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. So what about you? New creations are a work of the Holy Spirit. They're not a work of your resume. They're not a work of, of your efforts. They're not a work of your heritage. They're not a work of your accomplishments. New creations are not uh, given by any kind of manipulation or any kind of arranging or negotiations, anything like that. No. New creations are the work of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is not at work in you, you are not a new creation. You're something of the flesh. Number two, new creations maintain perspective in their pursuits. There was something about Paul's life that was amazing, but he considered it garbage. He no longer pursued it. He considered it lost for the sake of Jesus. And what did he pursue instead? That's perspective. Can you pursue God even, even if it means the rest of your accomplishments end up being nothing? Less than nothing? The things about your life that you hold on to right now, that you look at yourself and go, wow, look at that. What perspective do you maintain regarding leaving behind things and pressing on? What is it about that? I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He presses on. He presses on. New creations are a work of the Holy Spirit. New creations maintain perspective in their pursuits. And at a practical level, new creations see stopping and starting in their life. If you are new, let's end our series with this. If you are new, then something must have now started. What is it about you that starts that wasn't you before? You could look at Paul's life. He had all this confidence and all these fleshly accolades that everybody would look at that and go, oh, wow, what a guy. But no, that was garbage. So what did he now pursue? What now starts? The new creation sees starting and stopping. There's things about you that need to, need to have stopped. No more. They're the old you. They're the old Joel. The old Joel is not allowed to be the current Joel. And when the old Joel is the current Joel, then the current Joel needs to repent. That former me doesn't belong as the current me. The new Joel in Christ, there's something about me that has stopped, that has stopped being my pursuit, that has stopped living for myself. And there's something that, is, that starts. What about you needs to stop? What about you needs to start? If you are born again, since you are born again, living by the Spirit, what now needs to be, how would you describe the current you? We can see how Paul describes it. All these other things are no longer him. They've stopped. And these are things that have started. What about you in a practical sense? Stops and starts. The old you that shouldn't be the current you. The new you that should be the current you. If you want to look at it practically, look at back in Galatians 5. What fruit's on your tree? If the bad fruit's on your tree, repent. If the good fruit is not on your tree, pray. You now have a direction. Something to press on. I need self-control, God. You're the only one that can grow that on my tree. I submit to that process. 
I need love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or self-control. Whatever they are, God, one of those fruit is not on my tree, and it should be on my tree. I am submitting to you as you grow that fruit. God, there's a fruit on my tree that shouldn't be on my tree. That needs to stop. I need to repent of that fruit. I need to repent of that sin, that idol, whatever that is. There's something about you that needs to start because you belong to Christ. And there's something about you that needs to stop. New creations are a work of the Holy Spirit. New creations maintain perspective in their pursuits. New creations see stopping and starting in their life. We'll be taking a break for seven weeks in terms of our, our normal study. We as a church are going to be doing something special. So this, as it exists right now, uh, we'll be taking a seven-week break. We're gonna, we, have some, we have some things planned in the in-between, the in and there'll be more to come soon. But this has been Big Red for Masterclass Theology from John 3 and Philippians 3. Thank you for letting me share. This has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode, and I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.